Luke's gospel account. We, we spent quite a bit of time, if you were around for this part of, of our uh, series through the book of Luke, uh, in Galilee, Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and then we worked uh, our way through the journey to Jerusalem, and uh, much of Luke's gospel account feels like it kind of goes at a, at a slow pace, like we're kind of in second gear. Um, and yet, when you get to the end of chapter 21 here, as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, the this book of the Bible really begins to pick up pace. We move into overdrive very quickly. The, the slow and steady journey to Jerusalem shifting into a, a quickly unfolding sequence of events. The betrayal of Judas, as we'll see this morning, setting the stage for the trial, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus, which is where we're going to spend the bulk of, of these summer months together. If you pick up the story in chapter 21, verse 37, Luke tells us, And every day he, Jesus, was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. You'll recall that that Jesus drove the, the money changers out of the temple back in chapter 19, verse 45, not only purging the temple of evil, but making the, the temple his very own pulpit, which we're told here that Jesus continues to, to do teaching day after day in the temple courts, crowds of people hanging on his every word, retiring in the evening to the the Mount of Olives, perhaps so as to establish his own timeline as to when his betrayal would take place, perhaps just like the many others simply seeking to escape the overcrowded city at night. Remember, upwards of six times the normal population is, is in the city of Jerusalem and around it at this point, having traveled there for the annual celebration of Passover, which Luke reminds us of in the very first verse of the very next chapter. Chapter 22, verse 1, he tells us, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. The feast of unleavened bread, the Passover, a several days long rehearsing and and celebrating the story of the Exodus. It's a story we've we visited several times throughout the course of our study of the book of Luke. In fact, it's a, it's a story that we visit all the time as a church, as the story of the Exodus is a significant moment in redemptive history, as many of you know. Many of you know this story well. The, the book of Genesis closing uh, with God's people being forced to enter Egypt as a result of, of a famine, only then to find themselves over the course of time enslaved and oppressed which went on for several hundred years in the land of Egypt. And yet, uh, we, we know Scripture tells us that it didn't fall on uh, blind eyes and deaf ears as the Lord saw the affliction of his people and heard their cry, raising up Moses as his ambassador to command Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let God's people go. As the story goes, not only did Pharaoh fail to, to do so, but he increased the heavy burdens of God's people. And so God, in order to demonstrate his power, brought a series of plagues upon Egypt. And the plagues went from bad to worse, culminating in the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn. Where God said to Moses, I want you to, to tell each household among my people uh, to, to take a lamb. And not just any lamb, but one without blemish. Judgment, it's coming upon the land and no one is exempt. Each one's to kill that spotless lamb and smear its blood on their front door with the the lamb acting as their substitute. It's either the blood of the lamb or the the blood of one's firstborn. And as the story goes, the Israelites did as God commanded, right? 
And that night, God struck down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, those whose front door was not covered by the blood of an unblemished lamb. That night being one of the the great pivotal moments in in the story of the Exodus, the night that God established Israel's freedom from Egyptian enslavement, over a million Israelites walking away from over 400 years of bondage, A moment in redemptive history giving expression to one of the the great motifs in Scripture. God bringing about freedom from enslavement, freedom from shackles, freedom from bondage. A story that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the true Passover lamb. The lamb without blemish or spot, Paul tells us, who gave his life in the shedding of his own blood. That God, as, as James prayed just a moment ago, in his righteous wrath towards sinners might pass over us that we might be set free, not from the shackles of Egypt, but the greater shackles of Satan, sin, and death. Coming back to that original Exodus story, in the wake of God having set his people free, they were commanded to eat unleavened bread the week following Passover each year. Why unleavened bread? Well, for one thing, as a reminder of of what God did in freeing his people and turning the table so quickly that, that they, they didn't have time for the dough in their kitchens to leaven before, before they had to leave Egypt. So that eating unleavened bread would remind them of how quickly God turned things upside down on their head in an instant in freeing his people. In addition, they would have known that leaven spreads through dough and has a way of affecting everything into which it comes into contact. As the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Do you not know that a, a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are, uh, really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul Paul uses uh, leaven as being symbolic of evil, of sinful indulgences. Paul says, Jesus bought you with his precious blood. In light of that truth, it's time to get rid of the corruption within you. Another way we might say it in its original context of the story of the Exodus, the goal was not simply to get Israel out of Egypt, but too to get Egypt out of Israel. To not only remove the Israelites from the land of foreign gods, but to remove the foreign gods from the hearts of the Israelites. This is the the kind of rich history and imagery in the background as Jesus and his disciples join the many having come into the city of Jerusalem. For the feast of unleavened bread, for the Passover. Consider this, the chief priests and scribes, all the while plotting Jesus' death, the slaughtering of the true Passover lamb, the leaven of greed, hypocrisy, and pride rising up in their very own hearts. We're told verse 3. It wasn't just the religious leaders. Verse 3 tells us, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Judas, he never truly believed in Jesus. 
And Jesus knew it from the very beginning. If you go back, go to John's gospel account, chapter 6, we're told, The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, Jesus says. But there's some of you who, who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He goes on to say just a few verses later, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Judas did, did just fine on his own apart from the devil's help when it came to living a, a life of God-dishonoring, sinful indulgence and disobedience. Described later in John's gospel account about midway through as a thief John chapter 12, verse 6, who having charge of the money bag, John tells us, would help himself to what was put into it. In his sinful flesh, Judas wanted to betray Jesus, motivated just like the religious leaders by a love of money. And yet, we're told in this morning's passage that the devil and the flesh joined in a dance as Satan took the hand of of a willing dance partner in Judas Iscariot. Entering him, possessing his soul, firing up the engines of his avarice, intensifying his greed. Judas here putting the the plan of disloyalty into motion and seeking out the religious leaders that he might negotiate the terms of of really the, the greatest kiss of betrayal the world has ever known. Luke tells us, verse 7, as the story continues, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a larger upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Similar to the the retrieving of the colt back in chapter 19 in preparation for the triumphal entry, here Peter and John go into the city to retrieve a a place for Jesus and his disciples to enjoy the, the Passover meal together. Some believing, similar to the retrieving of that colt a couple chapters back, that Jesus may have known the man maybe prearrange something in terms of of the acquiring of this upper room. Others believing that we may here have an example of the foreknowledge of of Christ. Verse 14, And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Think about this. Going all the way back to the institution of the Passover meal as a commemoration of of Israel's uh, redemption from Egyptian enslavement. You had the many Passover meals happening year after year after year after year. As we sit with this morning's passage... This is the final Passover meal foreshadowing the coming Messiah. 
The last in a long line of Passover meals looking forward in anticipation of a future hope as Jesus would soon prove to be the fulfillment of those very types and shadows. The true Passover lamb, innocent without blemish or spot, soon to be slain that the angel of death might pass over you and me. This meal, not only looking back to the redemptive work of God in that story of the Exodus, but two, looking ahead to the redemptive work of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And with that, looking forward to the hope of another great meal of celebration, which Jesus alludes to in verse 16, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he took a cup, Luke tells us, verse 17. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this. And divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The final Passover meal foreshadowing the coming Messiah and with it the institution of the Lord's Supper. The breaking of bread in that sacred moment symbolic of the broken body of Jesus. The cup symbolic of his shed blood. These words of of Jesus in the presence of the apostles and and the betrayer presenting us with with a few of the most incredible and glorious theological insights. Consider these things. For one, Jesus' words here are the words of substitution. This is my body which is given for you, verse 19. This cup that is poured out for you, verse 20. That word for, critical to the gospel, foundational. It's where we get the beautiful doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. That Jesus lived the perfect sinless life that you and I could never live having come to fulfill the law by keeping all of its commands on our behalf, the lamb without blemish or spot whose righteousness is credited to sinners by faith. Jesus died the death that you and I deserve to die, forever satisfying the law's demands against those who would turn to him in faith, the spotless, sinless lamb sacrificed on behalf of sinners so that in Christ the fullness of mercy and forgiveness might be ours. I love the way John Stott says it in his book, The Cross of Christ. He says, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. It's what makes the the shameful, humiliating, horrific death of Jesus Christ good news. He died so that God might be vindicated and glorified and so that we might be justified, reconciled, adopted, redeemed. As we sing, in our place condemned he stood, sealing our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. This is my body which is given for you. The cup that is poured out for you. 
Second, Jesus' words are, are not only the words of substitution, but the inauguration of the new covenant. Verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah uh, proclaimed to Israel in the midst of Babylonian exile. Many of you are familiar with these words. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. In receiving her freedom from Egyptian enslavement, her redemption, Israel failed to keep up her end of the bargain. Right, the old covenant couldn't make good on its promises because of the covenant-breaking nature of human hearts. Which is why Jeremiah 31 goes on to say, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. God promises to to write his law on human hearts, not tablets of stone, embedding his will deep within the hearts of his people. Clearly in the, the context of a relationship with him, I will be their God, they shall be my people. Obedience, no longer an obligation, but a joy. No longer a duty, but a delight. How? How in the world, you might ask, is is God going to do such a thing? Jeremiah 31, verse 34, goes on to say, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God declares he's going to, Embed his will deep within the hearts of his people in such a way that glad submission is just that, a joy. And the way he's going to do it is through a great act of forgiveness, glad submission to the Lord, the outworking of our astonishment of his grace. Coming back to this morning's passage, Jesus has come in order to establish for himself a Jeremiah 31 people. A new covenant people established on the basis of the blood that he would soon pour out at Mount Calvary. God's great act of forgiveness. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Third, Jesus' words are not only the words of substitution and the inauguration of the new covenant, but the establishment of a new meal of commemoration. And he took the bread, verse 19, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. One of the things we we gather together to do each and every week is to remember and celebrate the redeeming work of God in and through Jesus Christ. As the apostle Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You could say it this way. If preaching is the word of the gospel made audible, then the Lord's Supper is the word of the gospel made visible. If preaching is the gospel declared, then the Lord's Supper is the gospel displayed. Which is why we, we participate in communion as a church as often as we sit under the preaching of God's word. 
The Lord's Supper, it's the word of the gospel made visible. Our visible proclamation that Jesus' death matters. That, that as the Israelites participated in the Passover meal in remembrance of God's saving work in the days of Moses, so we, the church, participate in the Lord's Supper in remembrance and celebration of God's saving work in Jesus Christ. So much rich theology, so much rich gospel foundational truth in these brief verses. The saving work of Jesus, by the way, none of, none of the outworking events that would transpire would catch the Lord by surprise. The suffering, the death of Jesus on behalf of sinners. In fact, it was in accordance with God's definite plan. Look at, look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another. Which of them it, it could be who is going to do this? Here Jesus presents us with one of the great paradoxes in Scripture. The, the, the paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, which find their pairing in verse 22. Right on the one hand, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. This we surely know by the many prophecies of the Old Testament, right? Of the future suffering and death of the promised Messiah. From the earliest promise of, of a, an offspring of Eve, Genesis chapter 3, whose heel would be bruised in the crushing of the serpent's head. To the promise that, that the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and feet, Psalm 22. Written long before crucifixion had ever been invented. Not to mention the the many descriptions of the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah, by whose wounds sinners would someday be healed. And yet, Luke has something bigger in mind here in verse 22 than simply the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That word translated determined in verse 22, it comes from the Greek word horizo, and is used only here in, in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You won't find it anywhere else in the gospel accounts. In fact, it's used only eight times throughout the course of the entirety of Scripture. Six of those eight by none other than Luke himself. In fact, the, the next time that we see it is in, is in Luke's great sequel, the book of Acts. In the heart of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, where we're told, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up, betrayed, handed over, according to the, here it is, definite. It's the same word that you see in verse 22 of this morning's passage. The determined plan, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's the human responsibility piece. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The betrayal of Jesus was no accident. The arrest of Jesus was no accident. The trial, the crucifixion of Jesus, none of these things was an accident. But rather, according to, as we're told in Acts chapter 2, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. As you go on to see just two chapters later, Acts chapter 4, 
For truly in this city, the city of Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. That's a catch-all for everybody who participated in the betrayal and death of Jesus. To do whatever your hand, Lord, and your plan had predestined to take place. It's heavy hitter theology. Your hand and your plan, the sinless, mind you, sovereign, predestining work of God. And yet Judas did exactly what Judas wanted deep down in his heart to do in willfully betraying the Son of God. Which is why coming back to this morning's passage, Jesus says, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Which might prompt the question, how is that a hopeful way to end a sermon? Like, why not stop with substitutionary atonement, the new covenant, the inauguration of the Lord's Supper? No controversy there. And the answer is that there's something that infuses steel in the spine of the human soul in knowing that the script at this point in Luke's gospel account hasn't been snatched from the hand of God. As, as John Piper says in his book, Spectacular Sins, one of the most fascinating books that I've ever come across, he says, God did not just overcome evil at the cross. He made evil serve the overcoming of evil. He made evil commit suicide in doing its worst evil. In the death of Christ, he says, the powers of darkness did their best to destroy the glory of the Son of God. This is the apex of evil. But instead, they found themselves quoting the script of ancient prophecy and acting the part assigned by God. Precisely in putting Christ to death, they put his glory on display, the very glory that they aimed to destroy. The apex of evil achieved the apex of glory in Christ, the glory of grace. Your hand and your plan, O oh God, established before the foundations of the world. With you and I, the redeemed, considered by name. Not only that God might display his glory, but that the worst of sinners might know everlasting joy. We've all betrayed Jesus in failing to keep his commandments. And most of us have done it for far less than 30 pieces of silver. And yet, we have hope because this morning's story of betrayal would soon lead to an old rugged cross. The spotless, sinless Lamb of God sacrificed on behalf of sinners like you and me so that in Christ the fullness of mercy and forgiveness might be ours. A new covenant people established on the basis of the blood that he would soon pour out at Mount Calvary. His body broken for you. His blood shed for you. I would ask, have you turned to Jesus in repentance and faith? Do you know the forgiveness that can only be found in him? And if the answer is yes, my goodness... In a moment, we, we get to make this word of the gospel visible in and through the receiving of the Lord's Supper. Not only in remembrance and celebration of God's saving work in Jesus Christ, but too, an experience of true and real spiritual fellowship with the person of Jesus as a means of grace. 
We'll bring our song before him in a moment. Before the first lyrics are sung, we want to give some space for just a couple of minutes for you to meet with the Lord, to, to ask the so what if it hasn't already been brought before you. What do you want from me, Lord, in light of our time in the scriptures this morning? What would you have for me? When you're ready, over the course of these last few songs, you're welcome to, to come and, and take of the bread and the cup. There are communion stations on either side of the stage here. There's one that's gluten-free in that corner, or cups in that corner. You cannot miss communion in this room. The, the word of the, the gospel made visible is everywhere around us. Uh, I would encourage you, if you're a Christian, to receive of that meal, taking the bread, representing the broken body of Jesus, dipping it in the cup, representing his shed blood. Before you do so, just take a moment to sit with the rich imagery of this morning's passage. Imagine the, 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 the tens of thousands of paschal lambs within the city being slaughtered at the, at the time of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread. Consider Jesus, who would go on to, to die as the true Passover lamb, and receive and, and enjoy that meal, particularly in light of the uniqueness of sitting with the institution of the Lord's Supper this morning. In closing, I'll, I'll leave you with these words, which in, in reading this week just brought me so much comfort and joy. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on this particular passage, he says, Jesus desires to share his supper with you every bit as eagerly as he wanted to share it with his disciples the night of the first supper. Jesus died for you as much as he died for them, and he loves you as much as he loves them. It is to you that the bread is given and to you that the cup is poured because it was for you that his body was broken and for you that his blood was shed.